Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. On this episode of Jill on Money, you are not alone if you feel like you are juggling a lot of different financial relationships. The average consumer in the U.S. has 25 different financial services relationships, feels like it's completely out of control, doesn't know what's good for him or her versus, you know, who to trust, who not to trust. Right. And so giving customers tools to be able to better manage their money, to be able to make decisions that impact their lives, their families' lives is really important. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Today, speaking of our sponsor, we've got someone from the sponsor here in studio. His name is Omer Ismael. He's the head of consumer business at Goldman Sachs. And we thought we'd bring him in to tell us more about his role at Goldman Sachs. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. What is the very best career or financial decision you have made? When I decided to leave the private equity business to jump and kind of go full-time in the Marcus business, you know, I'd be lying to you if I told you I didn't have some healthy level of anxiety. You and I talked about, you know, what do you know about operating a business? You know, you're on the investing side. What do you know about managing a large team? Although at the time, I didn't think I'd have a 1,500-person team. <laughs> you know, I was more focused on in the double digits, maybe the triple digits, but certainly not, you know, 1,500. Um, you know, looking back, I'm really excited about you know, what we've been able to build and how proud we are of what we've been able to accomplish. And quite frankly, you know, the runway that, that we see ahead, um, you know, it's uh, it's been a really exciting journey and I'm really glad that I did it. It's okay, definitely so the best, best decision career, I made. Best career decision saying all in on Marcus. Okay, so let's go back in time and let's talk about your origin story, which is something I always like when I interview an executive. So where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Karachi, Pakistan, you know, did all my schooling there. My parents lived there at the time since, um, you know, I moved to the U.S. first and then they moved subsequently after. But I uh, came to the U.S. Uh, in uh, 1998. So I guess at this point, 21 years ago uh, to attend college. And I gave up, you know, 100, de 100 degree Karachi weather for uh, moving to Hanover, New Hampshire and hadn't seen snow ever before I showed up at Dartmouth. And, and here I am. Wait a second. What was that like? What was it like to be the Pakistani kid who comes in to like rah-rah, frat boyish Dartmouth? What was that like for you? So to be honest, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Um, you know, Obviously here for, you know, families that live in the U.S. And, and have the means to do it, there's a whole tradition around college visits. You go attend a bunch of schools, you go to a bunch of cities, you check out rural schools, you check out urban schools, you figure out, you know, what your kid wants to do, what makes sense for him or her. I didn't have any of that. Um, I had visited Boston once, so uh, I had, you know, visited the Harvard and the MIT campus, not in the context of applying there, but just I visited those campuses as part of touring Boston, but I didn't really know what I was getting into. I looked at a bunch of brochures. I figured out which university in the U.S. was, you know, had a good financial aid program for international students. And I kind of, you know, applied to a bunch of schools. You know, I'll share a little bit of a story um, that I think about, you know, pretty often. So my parents dropped me off at the Karachi airport uh, in September of 98. Uh, I had two suitcases with me and I had $100 in my pocket. I was going to spend one night in Boston uh, and then I was going to take the Dartmouth coach up from Logan Airport uh, to Hanover, New Hampshire. It's about a two-hour ride. For that one night in Boston, I was staying with a cousin of my dad's who I'd never met before. He came and picked me up at Logan. I asked my dad, I don't know what he looks like. You know, how am I going to know who he is? He's like, you'll figure it out. So anyway, I, sh 
So I show up at Logan. Sure enough, I figure it out. Um, and with the $100, I kind of, you know, did a little bit of mental math. And I said, you know, the one thing that I do know I need to get is a winter jacket. And so I kind of, you know, figured out $40 seemed like an appropriate amount of money of the 100 to spend on a, on a winter jacket. And so I asked my dad's cousin to take me to a store. He takes me to the local Marshall store. And I go buy what I thought was the heaviest jacket around that was available in the month of early September. And quite frankly, the heaviest jacket that I had ever owned, having grown up in Karachi, where winters only go down as 70, you know, go down to 70 degrees. Of course, by the time I got to Hanover, by middle of October, so this time, you know, in 1998, I realized that this jacket was not going to be good enough. No, you got like a uh, windbreaker. Yeah, exactly. I got a windbreaker. And so then October became November, became harder, and then December, and then January. And so, you know, I think about that story a lot. Obviously, I was too embarrassed to ask my parents for more money. Uh, and I was working in the college cafeteria, but hadn't earned enough to go back and go buy a heavier jacket. And so I basically spent that first winter you know, with this windbreaker as temperatures, you know, went down to negative 10 and negative 20. And I think a lot about that story now because so much of, you know, my career and what I've been able to do, I think, you know, goes back to, you know, the stories and the the stories of kind of resilience and humility and hard work, you know, that all started when I was uh, when I was in college in New Hampshire. What did you study at Dartmouth? So I studied political science you know, was interested in government. Dartmouth had a great government program. And so I uh, I started taking classes. You know, I was really interested in international relations. And so I thought that I would, uh, as, a, as a major within my major, I would, you know, do it in international relations. One of the things that I got completely fascinated by when I was at Dartmouth was the U.S. political system. Uh, you know, New Hampshire is a great place to go to mm. college because every four years there's a primary cycle. It was a very interesting primary cycle because, you know, you had George W. Bush, you know, running against John McCain. This was the year 2000. You know, you had Al Gore against Bradley. And it was just, you know, all the all the candidates would go through Dartmouth and basically come for town halls given the culture in New Hampshire. Mm. And so I ended up becoming kind of an American, you know, political history buff. Uh, and, you know, got to actually meet a lot of the candidates while they were coming to uh, while they were coming to Hanover. And did you actually consider politics as a vocation or is it just an avocation? As a as a Pakistani citizen uh, that, you know, was graduating, uh, you know, in 2002, a year after 9-11, my parents now had moved to the U.S. at this point. My dad used to work for GE uh, in Pakistan and the Middle East. And so when I was a junior in college, he had gotten transferred to Schenectady, New York. And so the thought of going back to Pakistan was hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, politics to somebody who, you know, did not have a visa to stay in the U.S. was not, you know, was not really an option. And so I just went to career services and said, tell me all the jobs that will sponsor me for an H-1B visa. And, you know, investment banks happen to be one of them. And so that's how I ended up at Goldman. Oh, wait. So your first job out of school was at Goldman Sachs. And what did you do? Is that Were you in investment banking? Is that where you started? Correct. So I was in investment banking. And one of the areas at Dartmouth that I spent a lot of time was I edited the college newspaper. And so I'd gotten interested in kind of the business of media. Obviously, you know a lot more about it than I do. I've kind of, you know, uh, don't spend time on it anymore. But at the time, had spent a lot of time on, and it was an interesting time. You know, newspapers were, you know, seeing declining revenues. It was kind of, you know, kind of the, the belly of the of the curve, you know. So I ended up joining the media and entertainment group in investment banking at Goldman. Who were, oh wait, you're allowed to tell us who your clients are now because that's the past, right? So who are some of the clients that I would know, that we would have heard of? 
I ended up spending a lot of time uh, actually in the telecom sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, many of the large kind of wireless carriers, you know, were still... Which is kind of an exciting right. time to be in that, right? A- in the 2000s. Absolutely. Um, so I spent a lot of time on, uh, you know, the sprints of the world. Um, I ended up doing investment banking in New York for a couple of years. And then with Goldman went to London, where a lot of our emerging market uh, investment banking work happened out of London. Uh, and so one of the really exciting things that I got to work on very early on my career was actually the privatization of Pakistan Telecom. Get out! So, so Goldman had won this mandate. It had kind of been dormant for a few years. And then it just so happened that I, when I went to London, all of a sudden the deal kind of came back to life. And, you know, I was the resident Pakistani who happened to be in the telecom and media group. And so I got sent to Pakistan to work on that deal. Wow. How long were you there? I mean, it was like back and forth. I was living in yeah. London at the time, but I was, you know, over a nine-month period, you know, probably made eight or ten trips. Did uh, you still have family there at that time or had everyone moved to the U.S.? Be, uh, my, my folks had moved to the U.S. And so I had some extended family and all my friends, you know, a lot of my friends growing up were still back home. What was it like to go back there as this Goldman Sachs, you know, uber great investment banker? How did right. that feel? So I don't really consider myself a Goldman Sachs uber great banker. So I, I like I, that. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. And I certainly didn't, you know, certainly didn't think of that in 2004. It was, uh, listen, it was really exciting to work on a mandate that I knew was important to the country. Um, there was obviously a wave of telecom privatization that was happening, you know, all over the developing world. And it was really neat uh, to go back and, you know, to make contacts with, you know, high ranking government officials that were, you know, responsible for the for the sale. Uh, And it was done, you know, in an extremely transparent way, which was which was really exciting. Okay, so you do that. You got to go to Harvard Business School because that's what everyone has to do. And (laughs) you get back out of Harvard and then back to Goldman. Like you didn't go anywhere else. There was no There was no idea in your mind that you were going to go, like, let me go check out the world or let me go work for the client or you just went back to Goldman. What did you do when you got back to Goldman? So I went to the private equity group at Goldman. Um, You know, one of the things that has kept me at Goldman for as long as it has and I haven't really worked anywhere else is just the variety of experiences that you can have inside uh, inside the firm. And so this looked very different Mm. than investment banking did. And then um, how long were you in the private equity side? So I, I was there for almost a decade. Wow. Um, I was there for almost a decade. But but during that time, got to work on a whole host of things. When I first joined uh, right out of business school in 2007, you know, I was uh, investing in private credit. And then, you know, for almost about six, seven years, spent a lot of time on the classic private equity side, you know, looking at a range of industries, looking at healthcare, looking at media, looking at financial services, all kinds of businesses that were going through pretty massive technology transformations. Come out of the financial crisis and Goldman is classified along with Morgan Stanley as a financial holding company, which now means, guess what? Hello, the Fed is regulating you. You're a bank. You've got a lot of issues. But I understand there was some sort of secret awesome summit that took place with uh, a bunch of Goldman partners. I don't know if you were actually at that summit where someone said, well, if we're going to be regulated like a bank and we're going to be regulated as if we had an institution that maybe not a huge commercial bank, but maybe we should do something with it. So talk a little bit about the concept, how Marcus emerged from that thought process. So this, uh, you're right, as you mentioned, Goldman became a bank uh, coming out of the crisis. This summit actually didn't happen for a few years after So if you think about the period from the financial crisis up until about 2014, you know, a lot of it was about, you know, setting up the regulatory compliance infrastructure of being a bank. 
but there really was no new businesses that we thought of. Some existing businesses of Goldman started booking business into the bank, but we really talked about the bank like the third person, like the bank. But it was it was kind of in the summer of 2014 when really my Marcus journey began, when a few of us started looking at, you know, we are a bank, we're going to remain a bank. It's almost like you have 10 acres of land and you're farming on two of them. How could we use the bank as a strategic avenue for growth? What are new businesses that we could start? One of the things that we had been seeing in the private equity group by virtue of our portfolio, by virtue of the companies that we had invested in or looked to invest in is what was happening in the consumer banking landscape. So we knew a couple of things to be true. One, there was a very, very large profit pool in the consumer banking space. We can make a lot of money. Right. That's number one. We can make a lot of money, but also you can make a lot of money by having relatively small market shares. If you think about Goldman's institutional business, where historically Goldman's played for 150 years, you know, that entire profit pool is $400 billion. If you think about the consumer and the small business space where Goldman has not played historically, that's almost $1.4 trillion. It's three and a half times the size. So you don't have to become JP Morgan Chase. You don't have to become City to play in that pool. You don't have to be all things to all people and you can pick and choose your spots and still have a meaningful business without you know assuming heroic market share. So that's, that's number one. Wait, can I have to interject one sure. thing? So now you were talking, it's five years after the financial crisis. Financial institutions still really, I mean, the public hates us, right? You guys go out and you've identified this area, but how do you think about tackling the pushback you might get from, oh my God, that's that guy, that Goldman Sachs, that's the vampire squid, that's that. How do you push back against it? How do you reframe who you are and what role right. you want to fulfill in the consumer's mind? So one of the things that we did early on, and the reason why we entered this space was not just because it was a large space, but also there were very significant consumer pain points. As you said, traditional banks not liked by the customers, very, very low approval rates, very low favorability rates. The customers feel like the banks are not on their side. They feel like the products aren't transparent. There's so much fine print. I don't know what's good for me. I'm completely overwhelmed. We kept on hearing this over and over and over again from customers. Hmm. And so really the idea was we are a bank. These are large profit pools that we could go after, but we could set up this business from a complete clean sheet of paper. How about take the best of being a bank and the balance sheet and the legal compliance regulatory status, but be a fintech. Do it in a way that we don't have any legacy business models, don't have any legacy technology. And how about really take our cost advantage because we're creating this from a clean sheet of paper and give customers real value. And if we do it that way, we'll win the hearts and minds. We'll be on the side of the customer, create a business that is financially attractive for Goldman Sachs and the customers will, you know, give us the kudos for, you know, doing it in a way that is on their side. And that really was what we were trying to do. You were employee number one at Marcus. Is that right? So I, inside of our private equity team, led the team to evaluate whether or not we should do this. And I thought this was going to be a three, four, five month assignment. We're going to, you know, we'll figure <laughs> out whether or not the executive office and the board will give us the green light to do this. And if, in fact, they will give us the green light to do this, this will look like, you know, what we do in the private equity context. You know, of course, this was not an investment that we were ultimately going to sell. But, you know, we could have some kind of an internal board. I could continue to be involved. That's what I thought I was doing. And what L happened? 
And honestly, you know, first of all, nothing ever takes three months, right? So <laughs> three months became six months, six months became nine months. We started building out a team. We, we knew that there was some resident knowledge inside Goldman Sachs, but in order to create a consumer banking business, a fintech inside Goldman Sachs, we needed to get the right talent from the outside. You know, by the time we had eight, nine, 10 people, at this point, it had been a year. You know, we had spoken to 10,000 customers about their pain points. Uh, we knew, you know, what was the product we wanted to launch with. We knew how we wanted to build it. And honestly, I just got really excited about the idea of actually, you know, uh, leaving my private equity career and doing this full time. Is the real root of this that you wanted to work in the one place of Goldman where you could wear blue jeans? <laughs> Is that really what, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about that because you have one foot in both worlds at that time, right? And so we're talking 15-ish, right? And what I noticed when I first, uh, and I had been to Goldman for something else and I walked onto the Marcus floor and it did feel like a fintech startup environment. And I found that to be really paradoxical considering what I knew, you know, and I'm an old fart, right? So what my Goldman uh, friends are, you know, been there for 30 years and it was a very clear culture. So what was it like at the time being in a, a 145-year-old institution launching a startup? Right. So even in the last three years since we've started Marcus, one of the things that I have been really excited about is kind of seeing how Marcus has taken on the best of what Goldman Sachs has to offer and how parts of the Marcus culture are now, you know, spreading their way through. If you go to Goldman Sachs today, right, you will see a lot more jeans. Right. Well, I like that then, Solomon relaxed the dress code is a good thing. Then uh, then you did then you did three years ago. But you know, back to the decision three, four years ago. You know, we were very clear about what are the sacred cows, uh, the cultural aspects of how Goldman Sachs does business that have to be part of how we build the Marcus team. And what are those? We have to be client centric. We have to do right by the customer every time. You know, it cannot be a star athlete culture. It has to be a star team culture. We have to all work together. You know, one plus one has to be greater than two. And I've seen that across every business that I've been part of at Goldman Sachs. But having said that, we were also specific about the things that should and can be different, right? If you want to attract the best consumer talent, if you want to attract the best technology talent, you know, then the culture, how people work, what the work environment looks like, you know, how people dress, like all of those things are important. Those are some of the very deliberate decisions and some of them might seem relatively minor, but actually when you're building a culture and getting a team together and trying to innovate inside a large place, a business that is completely new to an organization that has been around for 150 years, I think it's really important to be deliberate about those decisions. So in my recollection of my friends and family that have worked at Goldman, there is a cultural touch point, which is you have to check your voicemail three times a day, seven days a week. Is that still the case? I don't think people in Marcus check their voicemail three times a week. But is it is it still the case on the other side of the house? I think you don't know. I don't know. Listen, I'm sure I'm sure that it is. You know, it's it's continued. But I think again, it's an example of something that is not important to us in the Marcus business, and it's it's one of those things that you know people don't do. Okay, so. You launched Marcus with a savings product. We bought the GE deposit product in April of 2016. We launched the Marcus loans product in October of 2016. 
I think a couple of things that tied these two decisions together. One, we wanted to look for products where there was a real significant customer need. You know, most customers in the U.S., prime customers, very protective of their credit score, are paying high 20% interest rate on their credit card debt. After the financial crisis, they didn't think they had any alternative, right? So I got into a problem, my my roof fell in, it's a time between when the insurance company paid out, I'll pop it on the credit card, now I'm paying 17%, and my bank, which used to do personal lending, says, absolutely not, we're not doing that right. anymore. Or if they did personal lending, the process was so cumbersome and so difficult, right? So again, back to our pillars, our brand pillars. We give customers value. So they're saving, you know, four to five percentage points relative to what they're paying on their credit card and doing it in a way that's simple and transparent, all online, all easy, all transparent. So there's no there's no minimums, there's no fees in the product. And so back to why did we make this choice? Real significant customer pain points and that we could offer them value and do it in a way that's simple and transparent. And then the other thing is, you know, from an internal standpoint, you know, we deliberately chose products as our first ones that were less operationally intensive than some of the other consumer products. Mm. It was really important to us to start with something that by definition would be more operationally intensive than anything else Goldman had done, yet less operationally intensive than other consumer financial products that we could have started with. I'll tell you a story because this is interesting. So when we bought the GE platform, as you mentioned, it had 150,000 customers. That day... With the day that we closed on that transaction in April of 2016, we doubled Goldman's client count. Across every one of Goldman's businesses oh globally, That's we had 150,000 customers. And just by one acquisition, the 150,000 deposit customers, we doubled Goldman's client count. What have you learned three years ago? You made lots of decisions. Tell us about some of the mistakes you made and what were how you corrected them. Because right. everyone, it's a new business. Right. You got to mess up a right. bunch. We try to, in the Marcus business, celebrate mistakes. Because the day that you start, you obviously start with no data of your own. Right. And you have the ability to, you know, look at what mistakes you're making and, you know, how you want to correct it. I'll give you a very simple example. The first time that we launched the Marcus Loans business, you know, and we sent direct mail to certain customers, we had a code that uh, was a bunch of letters and then a bunch of numbers. And what we started noticing relatively early on is that when the customers were typing in the code, when going on our website and applying for a loan and typing in the code, they actually weren't typing in the numbers, they were only typing in the letters, hmm. right? Small insight that you just would not even know, right? unless you tested it out in the market and see how customers were reacting to it. Again, very, very small example. But within a matter of, you know, a few hours, we were able to tell that of 100 customers, X made this mistake. And, you know, X is too high. And so how do you go back, very quickly go back and change what that code looks like so that the customer knows that they actually have to enter both the numbers and the letters one of the things that we keep on coming back to is mistakes will happen. And what we should do is experiment in the market, you know, do lots of mini experiments inside, see how customers are reacting and then course correct depending on what we're learning. Okay, so you come from this great background, you're part of a team and now you are running a huge unit. I mean, how many employees? 1,500. 
what do you know about managing 1,500 people? <laughs> so now let's talk about you, Omer. Right. What is it about management that you never understood before? Like when you thought about managing, what did you think it was and what has it actually turned out to be? Right. You know, the, the question that I get asked is what's the difference between the investing world and, you know, managing an operating business or running an operating business? You know, in the investing job, you manage people whose jobs you know how to do. Mm. In an operating business, you manage people whose jobs you don't know how to do. Even if someone has become the CEO and has always been an operator, odds are that they grew up largely in one functional area. They were a marketing person or the risk person, or they grew up in one business unit. So even if you've been an operator your whole life, you're going to be managing people whose jobs you don't know how to do, which is not the case in the investing side. One of the things that I feel like has really benefited me, I think this goes back to a little bit of my roots and where I grew up and the experiences that I told you about. You know, when I went to Dartmouth, I had never watched a football game. I didn't even know the sport existed. I'd never seen snow before. As I told you, I was, you know, it was 100 degrees colder than growing up in Karachi. Uh, I didn't really understand the lingo, you know, and... What does that experience do to you when you show up, you know, having grown up in Pakistan and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're thrust in an environment that's completely different. And it wasn't about survival. It was actually about thriving, mm. right? And so, so much of this comes back to resilience. So much of this comes back to having an open mind. So much of this comes back to kind of humility and knowing that, you know, you can be a hardcore executioner, but at the end of the day, you got to have a team that you, you know, can trust and you listen to and listen to the best ideas and let the best ideas win. And so it's been a personal journey. I'm not perfect, but I draw a lot on, you know, the experiences that I had very early on in, in, in my life, you know, when I when I came to college in order to, you know, help me succeed at Marcus. What were some of your misconceptions about the retail environment? Like, you, when you're cloistered in a more institutional business, what is it that you probably didn't realize till you were doing it about the retail environment? Right. I think that in the institutional environment, clients tend to be a lot more rational. In the retail environment, clients and customers tend to be very emotional. That's a good thing. That's not something that is um, that I had appreciated as much. Mm. You know, the average consumer is forming an opinion on a website or an app in 0.05 seconds, right? That is the amount, in the blink of an eye, a customer is making a decision about whether or not they write the experience or not. There are customers in our Marcus Savings business that come to us, know exactly what they want, want to get through the journey and open an account as quickly as possible. There are many customers that are, again, for years and years and years, having been served products by other banks that are not transparent and have lots of gotchas and lots of fine prints, you know, want to be taken through the journey of what it is that I'm getting. And they want to be served up content before you quickly get them in through the application process. You know, I'm sure you've seen the statistics. 60% of millennials want to do business with a brand that they can trust. And so again, back to, you know, customers are not always making rational decisions about their money or about products and services they want to buy. 
they're making emotional decisions. And that's a huge difference between that and kind of the institutional side of Goldman's businesses. All right. Tell us a little bit about, so how much money you have in deposits now? So we have, uh, you know, three years in, we have $55 billion of deposits. That B, we have billion. Billion. Okay. B, billion. That's a real number. And how about the lending side? So we have uh, we have over five billion dollars in uh, in loan balances uh, in uh, in the three years that we've been in business. How are you going to manage uh, the next recession? You guys actually came of age in an expansion midway right. into an expansion that's right. now in its eleventh year. Right? Is that what keeps you up at night as an operator? Just out of you know, like what what makes you yeah. nervous about going ahead? So there are lots of things that keep me up at night. Recessions, uh, you know, recessions, one of them. I don't know when it's going to happen or what form it's going to take, but it is going to happen at some point. Uh, and as you said, you know, we're, we're late in the cycle. Um, you know, risk management is, is a core DNA at Goldman Sachs. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about that. You know, quite frankly, a lot of it is also the decisions and the underwriting decisions that you make on the way in. Uh, as I said, we do not want to be in the business of overextending customers and over leveraging customers and understanding their ability to pay. Uh, but obviously, you know, uh, how our portfolio is performing, what are our underwriting models, how we're looking at the data. These are all things that we spend a lot of time on, because as I said, nobody knows when it's going to happen, but it is going to happen at some point. When you think about you have a strategy hat that you wear, you have an operational hat, you have a strategy hat. So what is it that excites you? Right. So we are building a multi-product consumer platform um, that helps consumers across various financial services needs that they have. Their needs to borrow, their needs to save. And over time, you will see us, you know, entering new products that, you know, go back to the same core principles that I talked about. We can solve real consumer pain points. We feel like Goldman Sachs has a competitive advantage in entering that space uh, and, you know, the profit pools in the segment should be large enough so that our success is not predicated on some unreasonable market share. And our two go-to-market strategies are we'll acquire customers, uh, you know, through the Marcus by Goldman Sachs brand. And then every single product that we create, we will embed them in other partners' ecosystems. And so an obvious example of that was, you know, the recent credit card that we launched with Apple. And so, you know, expect us to, you know, over time to, you know, continue to expand our, you know, product portfolio uh, and then find new partners to partner with. Because, you know, one of the advantages that we have at Goldman Sachs is the corporate relationships that we have and the ability to strike partnerships with, you know, large consumer ecosystems like Apple. And you also clearly want to have an educated consumer base. And I presume that's one of the reasons that you made the clarity acquisition. So in addition to actual products, you're, you made this big acquisition, which is people who are trying to manage their money. So what's the thought process behind that? At this point, we've spoken to 100,000 customers across a variety of forums. We've spent time with them one-on-one in their houses. We've done large quantitative surveys. The one theme that is consistent across every single one of them is that the customer is overwhelmed. The average consumer in the U.S. has 25 different financial services relationships, feels like it's completely out of control, doesn't know what's good for him or her versus, you know, who to trust, who not to trust. And so giving customers tools to be able to better manage their money, to be able to make, you know, decisions that, you know, impact their lives, their families' lives is really important. And the Clarity Acquisition is exactly, you know, it's about that. The idea that you can aggregate your accounts and then all of a sudden, algorithmically, we can tell a customer, 
any bill you'd like to cancel because, you know, these are all your recurring charges. You know, these are the types of things. Customers want information, but then they want actionable insights and ability to actually act on those insights in a seamless way within the app in order to improve their financial lives. So Goldman's sinking a ton of money into this Marcus business. I'm wondering if there's any pushback on other sides of the business so that, you know, someone says, well, why is this Marcus thing getting all the business? That's like a very unsexy business. Has the mindset within the building changed? I haven't heard any of it. Really? You're Um, such a liar. (laughs) I haven't. (laughs) Goldman, you know, the business started under Lloyd. Uh, David is now the CEO. um, And both of them have been extremely committed to the business. They believe in the opportunity uh, that is in front of us. You know, within three years, we've been able to, you know, grow the business to, you know, obviously 1,500 employees, but we have over 55 billion in deposits. We've originated, you know, over $5 billion in loan balances. You know, the business, you know, has demonstrated success over the last three years, but in many ways, we believe we're kind of in the first innings. And this is going to be a long journey of building out a consumer platform. And, you know, I really feel like we and the Marcus team come to work every single day with, you know, 35,000 fans across Goldman Sachs rooting for our success. You know, when we launch a credit card with Apple, when we cross $50 billion in deposits, you know, when we cross a milestone in the number of customers, there's an excitement around whether you're in the investment banking division, whether you're, you know, in the sales and trading securities division, you know, people are excited about, you know, what it is that we're doing. You know, for the first time, Goldman Sachs has a product that, you know, is is for everyone. And so it's actually really exciting seeing the organization really rally behind our business and, and rooting for our success. What was your worst business or career or financial decision? Right. When I was a junior in college, I spent Thanksgiving at my friend's house and uh, his dad was like, hey, look what I came across this internet. Nobody, you know, nobody goes on... Uh, on Yahoo anymore. Everybody's choosing, everybody's going on this thing called Google. You know, I was like, what is Google? You know? And so I feel like my mistake is I should have bought Google. Uh, I should have uh, become a big believer in Google then. Early when they on. Went, yeah. When they went public, I should have uh, bought that stock. Regrets. He's had a few. <laughs> You're listening to Jill on Money. Okay. It's time for the Marcus Minute. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. And this is so much fun because in the hot seat today is Omar... Ismael, who runs the whole Marcus business. So we're going to give you very limited time. Quick response. One word answers to the following questions. Are you ready to play? Ready. What's one word to describe your relationship with money? Personal. What's always worth spending on? Experiences. What's the dumbest thing you've spent money on? Shoes. How much do you spend on a haircut? $30. It's your last day on earth. You've got a hundred bucks in your pocket. What's your last meal? Uh, a kebab shop in Pakistan. Omer Ismail from Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jill. This was great. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Omer Ismail for coming in today. We drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday. Sometimes we throw a bonus in there as well. If you'd like to subscribe, just head to wherever you find your favorite podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, Radio.com, Google Play, anywhere. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13, and the show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week.